Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The Come on, come on, listen to the money talk edition. As my broadcast partner Dave Lapham and Bengals.com editor Jeff Butch Hobson join me to discuss the Bengals' latest free agent acquisitions, the current state of the offensive line, the brutal treatment that Andy Dalton is getting from Chicago Bears fans, and answer some of your Ask Lap questions. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since Ted Lasso. My wife and I started to watch the comedy series Ted Lasso on Apple TV about a week ago, and it quickly became an all-out binge. We breeze through all 10 episodes in record time and can't wait for the next season, whenever that arrives. If you're not familiar with the character or the show, Ted Lasso is an American football coach who becomes the head coach or manager of a Premier League soccer team. It's obviously a fish-out-of-water comedy, but Ted Lasso is one of the most endearing, cheerful characters on TV. He knows nothing about soccer, but plenty about coaching. And the result is a show that's both funny and uplifting. If you don't have Apple TV, I think it's about five bucks a month, so you can always cancel after watching Ted Lasso if you want to. Plus, you can decide who has the better mustache, Ted Lasso or Giovanni Bernard. Now, let's get to football. Before getting to this week's conversation with Lap and Butch, There was huge news in the NFL on Friday that has a direct impact on the Bengals as the San Francisco 49ers made a trade with Miami to acquire the number three pick in the NFL draft. In addition to giving Miami the 12th pick in this year's draft, San Francisco coughed up two future first-round selections and a third-rounder. Let's face it, you only give up that kind of draft capital if you're going to move up to select a quarterback. So, what does that mean for Cincinnati? Jacksonville is going to take quarterback Trevor Lawrence number one overall. The Jets appear likely to take quarterback Zach Wilson number two overall, meaning the 49ers would take Justin Fields, Trey Lance, or Mac Jones to make it three quarterbacks in a row. Atlanta currently has the fourth pick. No matter what the Falcons do, Oregon offensive lineman Panay Sewell or LSU wide receiver Jamar Chase would still be on the board at number five. Maybe both of them. Then again, perhaps a team needing a quarterback would offer the Bengals a king's ransom for the fifth pick. In any case, knowing that at least three of the four teams picking ahead of them in this year's draft are expected to take quarterbacks is a great development for Cincinnati. We'll get to the draft in my chat with Lap and Butch, but we start with free agency. Gentlemen, since last week's podcast, the Bengals have added two more free agents. They have signed cornerback Eli Apple to a one-year deal, the 10th pick back in the 2016 draft out of Ohio State. He hasn't lived up to that draft status yet, uh, but he doesn't turn 26 until August. They have reportedly signed safety Ricardo Allen, who is 29. He's spent all six of his uh, NFL seasons in Atlanta, a four-time captain. He started on a Super Bowl team. 
Let's get your reactions to those two additions, Eli Apple and Ricardo Allen. Lap, you're up first. Well, I think both of them are, are good signings for depth. You know, you have to, uh, you, you obviously get your starters, but you, you have to have depth, particularly at the cornerback position. We, we saw that last year. There were some, uh, some injuries the Bengals dealt with at, at that position as well. Trey Waynes never took a snap. And all I hope is that we never see number 38, LaShawn Sims again. <laughs> Man, every time that kid took the field, the ball was a magnet. It was going right there. I mean, every coach just zeroed in on him. So I hope the exit meeting with he and Zach Taylor was, hey, LaShawn, thanks for everything, but we're not bringing you back. You know, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Eli Apple would be a huge upgrade from what they had on the football field, you know, at the conclusion of the season for sure in terms of depth. So, and uh, Ricardo Allen, smallish type guy, you know, not a, not a very big guy, but what did they say? One of those kind of guys that absolutely loves football. Football's important to him. Football's the biggest thing in his, in his life, you know, and, and I don't think you can have enough of those kind of guys. And, uh, you know, the other free agents that they signed like Hendrickson, when you hear that guy, football is super important to the guy. And so I, I think that Ricardo Allen, Eli Apple, they'll be on that, uh, on that text chain of the secondary with Von Bell, Jesse Bates, all those guys that are, are going to be getting ahead of the game, you know, in my mind, if they possibly can, because they're coming from different uh, systems. So there's only so many coverages and so many ways you can play the coverage, but there's a lot of different nomenclature. So the thing that they have to get used to is the language. So if, if Jesse Bates and Von Bell can get them up to speed more quickly, the killer bees can get the language out to all those guys. What, whatever you call this, it's now called that. And they can, um, you know, get a get a jump start on those kind of things. I, I think I think that'd help the the back end immeasurably. How about you, Butch? You know, I I mean, I'm with Lap. I like them both. The you know the Eli Apple uh, signing kind of conjures up uh, cornerbacks past uh, Pac-Man Jones, Terrence Newman, guys who had uh, they were on stops before where things had soured on them, and they revived their careers. You know, maybe and Apple's a lot younger uh, than that, but uh, you know he's had a you know he's, he's struggled, but I think you know. Great, uh, great chance for him here to turn things around. I don't think Darius Phillips should get all, uh, should get too upset. I think he's a guy that, uh, you know, I think they're probably looking at him as before. You know, they aren't looking for Apple, I think, to come in and, and, and uh, take over for Phillips. I think they, you know, maybe see some competition there. But I think Phillips is clearly the guy, in my mind, who would be the first guy off the bench, you'd think, behind the, the other three. And uh, Allen, I think, is, uh, you know, there's a guy that's, uh, you can't, you can't miss there. Uh, six-year veteran, respected, um, you know, like Blap said, small guy, but feisty, you know, between him and Hilton, I guess they're, they're not very tall, but they sure bring a lot of fire, you know, and uh, I guess the Allen signing, it may preclude bringing back Sean Williams. You lose a lot of experience with Sean, you know, on teams and everything. So, uh, you know, hopefully Allen can, uh, Allen can help fill that too. You do get younger if it's Ricardo Allen in for Sean Williams, since uh, Allen is still in his 20s. You know, my thought on these two signings is free agency is not just a matter of trying to add really good players. You know, that's clearly something you're trying to do, but it's also trying to replace bad players with competent players. And as Lap mentioned, LaShawn Sims really struggled last year. He started 10 games, so he played a lot. His pro football focus numbers were in the 40s. You can't have that. You've got to have your bottom line guys 
closer to the 60s. And that's what, you know, an, an Eli Apple can give you as a depth piece or Ricardo Allen can give you as a depth piece. And I'm glad you mentioned Darius Phillips, Butch, because he has, you know, tweeted some cryptic things indicating he's, you know, not happy about all of these additions they've made to the secondary. And in a sense, I get it. His pro football focus rating last year was actually better than Will Jackson's. He was 22nd of the guys that had enough snaps. Will Jackson was 26th. But like you said, these guys are going to play. Darius Phillips, assuming he's healthy, is going to get a ton of snaps. Cornerbacks are little guys tackling big guys and guys that are sprinting up and down the field every play. So they always get hurt. It's impossible for a corner to be out there 100% of the time. You need depth, and they have definitely upgraded their depth. Well, I, I, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, Will Jackson and, and, and Darius Phillips in a comparison there. And I think the biggest thing with both of those guys is inconsistency. You know, they both, they both uh, will have lapses, you know, and Will, Will's making a fortune now. And Darius Phillips is a lot more manageable and, and Butch, you mentioned special teams, you know, and Darius Phillips obviously has a big role there. But that's where I think the Bengals got hit the most in, in, in this free agency period is special teams. You know, they're able to re-sign Clark Harris, Kevin Huber, but Alex Erickson goes to Houston. Seaton Carter goes to Miami. A couple of guys that big time for Darren Simmons. What's the common denominator there? The New England Patriot factor. Head coach of the Dolphins, Patriot. General manager of Houston now, Patriot organization. You know, they, the way uh, they do their special teams under Bill Belichick, there's a lot of similarity. There's a common denominator. The, the special teams coach was the mentor uh, at one time for, for Darren Simmons. They're, they run the same type of system, all that sort of thing. That, that's where I think they get hurt a little bit. You know, Randy Bullock moves on. Obviously, he had his problems in the clutch. But, you know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't terrible. Uh, but, but, boy, the kicks that he missed were big. I mean, you just can't, you can't have it. I thought he was a real pro the way he handled it after the fact, but some of those kicks you just can't miss. But so I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering how many of these guys in, uh, that they sign will be able to step up and take some of these roles in special teams or guys that they've got on the foot on the football team currently will fill some of these roles that, you know, Seath and Carter, Alex Erickson, guys like that filled. Um, and again, there's still the draft. There's still free agency after June 1st and all that. But I thought that uh, the, te the teams around the league, particularly with the New England Patriot connection, really, really respect what Darren Simmons does and went and got some of his players because they're going to fit, be able to fit their scheme very easily. Yeah, I think the draft, I mean, you know, they got to be combing that uh, for a returner because there's nobody behind Phillips, a punt returner. And we know Phillips' history is uh, he'll put the ball on the ground. And uh, plus, you know, you mentioned it too, Horty. If Phillips is healthy, that's a big thing. I mean, I think, you know, these guys like Darius, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, he's been, uh, you got to go easy on him during the week. He's got the knee thing. And uh, so you kind of got to manage him a little bit physically, you know, and that's why you had to go get like an apple or somebody, you know, believe me, if they had thought Sean Sims was going to start 10 games when they signed him, they probably would have, it would have been guys leaping off the uh, collars here at the stadium. But that's, you know, that's how, that's how low they got quickly after, after Wayne's got hurt. Phillips was limping around. Will Jackson had a had a concussion. I mean, uh, you know, so, you know, you know, some guys had COVID. So, you know, suddenly Jalen Davis was playing his first snaps of his life. Uh, 
you know, so, uh, you know, they really had to go back. They had to, they had to beef that up. And so, uh, you know, the Apple, the Apple thing with Phillips is, uh, I think that, and then you get Tony Brown as maybe the sixth guy, which is probably about, you know, they probably feel pretty comfortable going in with that. I think the Brandon Wilson signing is huge for the reasons we're talking about too. You know, you can't afford to lose Brandon Wilson, you know, one of the great returners in the league, uh, you know, and he was out there. All, all of Darren Simmons's pieces, you know, uh, his battery of snapper, holder, you know, uh, punter, uh, it, all, all those guys were out there as well as his return guys. And he lost some of them. He lost some of his key pieces. But keeping Brandon Wilson was a big deal, I think. Yeah, the thing with Darren, this is how good Darren is, you know, they avoided him losing his second best player for the second year in a row because Fedulum went to Miami last right. year. They lose, they lose federal, and then he comes back and they finish ninth, according to the uh, football outsiders. They finish, you know, finish ninth in the special teams ranking after he lost his best player. I mean, that's why Darren is so good. He can. Uh, I have a feeling if uh, we were the, you know, if we were the Gunners, he'd still, he'd still finish in the middle of the pack. Ain't much ammo in those guns if we're Gunners, but <laughs> you know, you look at it, uh, Fedulum and and uh, Stephen Carter back to back years go to Miami, special team stalwarts, go to the head coach who's New England background, tells you all you need to know about what he thinks of Darren Simmons as a special teams coach. If we're the gunners, Huber better punt it out of bounds every single time. All right, let's move on and look at this free agent group as a whole of the seven guys that they've signed so far. Trey Hendrickson, Chido Bay, Awuje, Mike Hilton, Larry Ogunjobi, Riley Reef, Eli Apple, Ricardo Allen, which which of those guys is your uh, favorite signing thus far? I go. It's a tight contest between Larry O. I'm not going to take a shot at that name. Ogan Joby, not that tough. Uh, o- Ogan Joby, because he <laughs> just, he just I, because but I know how to spell it because I wrote it so many times when he played <laughs> because he made so many plays. Right. And, but I, and and Hilton, I I think Hilton is a really nice uh, really nice add to the to the mix just as a. Uh, just from his mentality, you know, I uh, uh, like Mike Tomlin players. I've kind of gone up and I've had a love-hate relationship with uh, Tomlin, uh, watching him coach. I really think the last couple of years he's really uh, – he's a hell of a coach, you know. So you're coming out of that program, I think uh, I think that will help them, putting a guy like Hilton in there. So I, I, uh, Larry O with a, with a slight edge over Hilton. You know, I, I like the, uh, the combination, I think, that they were able to handle – they're, they're in the running for Galladay big time. You know, a lot of these uh, free agents are signing one-year deals. And it has to be a good one-year deal for both parties. So the only way it's a good one-year deal for the team that's signing is they're gonna, they can't do anything with the salary cap. You know, you can't prorate it or anything else. So you and try to incentivize it. And uh, the Bengals were right in the running with the guy. Galladay was hit. Galladay wanted to sign with the Bengals, my understanding. And the Giants made a longer-term commitment to him. But with the money that they didn't give Galladay, they got Ogan Joby and Reef. I'll take that. I'll take that. In my mind, the offensive and defensive line needed to be addressed. And uh, by not going, giving that money to, to Galladay, they re, they, two words that the Bengals, I think, did so well in free agency, two P words, patience and pivot. They were like low post players. They were pivoting so much. And they showed tremendous amount of patience, you know, to boot. And they, they didn't get, you know, all besmirched when, Oh man, this didn't work out. What are we gonna What are we gonna do? I mean, here in the uh, in the time frame of March Madness, they were like a low post player. They were pivoting so much, you know, and so they they move and they and they sign Ogan Joby and they sign Reef, 
and, you know, needed to have somebody at that tackle position. I would have loved to them have signed Zeitler. I know they were in the hunt, but Baltimore offered more than they were, they were, you know, going to offer. And, uh, you know, I think, I think Zeitler probably would have been okay coming back here, but Baltimore is a great fit for him. And that's the, that's the signing in my mind that got away. But, you know, if you get Reef addressed the tackle position, he can always kick in the guard. Zeitler ain't going to kick out the tackle. Zeitler's not going to give you the position versatility that Reef gives you. So, you know, the fact that uh, I like that, you know, addressing defense linemen, uh, Ogan, Joby, and Reef, but, uh, you know, Hendrickson as well. I mean, edge rusher. I, my, my thing was Paul Brown always built a team from the inside out. It, 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 as, as creative a thinker as he was and with all of his offense formations and schemes and everything, he knew it started at the line of scrimmage. He, his first pick ever with the Cincinnati Bengals, Bob Johnson, center right in the middle of the offense line, built from the inside out. That was his whole mindset. So I have no problem with them addressing uh, linemen, you know, defensive and offensive linemen. They finally got that offensive lineman that took some of the pressure off in Riley Reef. Butch, I'm going to agree with uh, your pick for my favorite free agent signing thus far. It's Mike Hilton's my guy for a couple of reasons. One, I like the fact that they got him for four years at a pretty reasonable price. He's going to get $6 million a year, which is the most of any of the slot corner free agents this year. So it's not like he was super cheap, but still it's $6 million a year. It's not 10 plus. I think slot corner is a hugely important position that, you know, maybe – is underrated in in terms of its importance. Those guys are on the field now probably 75% of the time. And I think he is one of the very best in the NFL. He's a playmaker. What has this defense lacked in recent years? A playmaker, somebody that can come up with an interception. He's got seven. Somebody that can sack the quarterback from time to time. He's got nine and a half. Somebody that can force fumbles. He's got a few of those. I just really think that he adds that element to this defense with the added bonus of you're stealing him from a division rival, which was also the case with Joby, And I love anytime you can do that. I think that's a good thing. No, that's a good call. I mean, pressure, pressure, pressure. They just haven't had it. I think the last three years, they've been the lowest in the league in sacks. And you get a guy in Ojanobi, who's a high kill bat again, sorry. But in Larry, you got a guy in Larry, you got a guy when he was playing kind of a three technique, in Cleveland, and Lap can speak to this probably better than I can, but I think in 18 and 19, he was he was playing nose, but he told me that he was kind of, he had a little bit more, it wasn't a true nose. They played him at a true nose in 20, and he, and he didn't, play, didn't play on third down. So now he's going to be a pure, he's going to be at his actual position, a pure three technique, you know, and if he can get six, you know, if he could get six, seven sacks out of a guy like that, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's huge. And I, and I, uh, it's interesting, Lap brought up Hendrickson, and, uh, you know, this is why, you know, pro football focus is great. Love pro football focus, but clearly the Bengals scouts have got it completely different than PFF. They've got, you know, Hendrickson, Mark, really below Carl Lawson. And while they have high regard for Lawson, I think they feel like, and Lap mentioned this on the, on the, preview, on, on the podcast last week, I think they believe Hendrickson is a better all-around player. He's bigger, and he's bigger against the run. But it's amazing how you can have these two things. You know, a pro football focus just kills the deal. But that's the guy the Bengals really, when you match it up, they would, uh, you know, Lawson graded so much better in PFF. But I think the Bengals feel like they got the better all-around player. From a football instinct standpoint, you know, Carl Lawson's a great athlete. But from football instincts, just, okay, that guy's a ball player. 
that guy sees things, that guy's there, even before it happens, you know, kind of thing. He's just a football player. I think Henderson's more of a, quote, football player in terms of seeing, uh, seeing the game, understanding the game, and, and all that sort of thing. Lawson has some great physical tools. There's no question about it. He's, you know, he's as explosive, uh, you know, his, his first step quickness, his suddenness, all that stuff. But I, I think they are getting a, a, a more complete uh, football player. And, and I do agree with uh, you guys. Joby was like the offset nose. You know, they put him in a gap and, and they'd let him penetrate some. And, and to me, Hilton the same way. When you can invert the line of scrimmage as a former lineman, guys that used to like worry me to death were guys that would, you know, line up in gaps or be able to jump across your face with quickness and get penetration. Because now all of a sudden you can't attack with as much, you know, uh, force and, and, and authority because, man, you're wondering, where's this guy going? What's he doing? Those guys, those quick guys, they're tough to deal with. And they can invert the line of scrimmage on you the wrong way. So Joby, you know, when you have a guy uh, from a slot corner who can invert the line of scrimmage on you, you know, on running backs, on, you know, matchups that favor him potentially as a pass rusher, and he's inverting the line of scrimmage and pressuring the quarterback. Not only is Sacks his tackle for loss, he's got a number of those, you know, in the running game. I mean, he's he's made he's made a lot of negative plays, which are positive plays for the defense, negative plays for the offense. He's been responsible for a lot of those. And if they can get uh, players that fit that attack mode, you know, and, and, and attack more, in my mind, football is punch, counter punch. Who's punching? Who's doing the counter punching? You know, and, and I think defensively, we've had, we've had to counter punch too much. Maybe we can start punching a little bit more. And it's like you said on Hendrickson, and I've used this, I borrowed your quote, and I, but I've credited you, 13 and a half sacks is 13 and a half sacks. He got him. Yeah, no matter. I mean, he was surrounded by great people, and he was playing with a lead with Drew Brees at quarterback. I mean, there are a lot of factors there. Yeah. Put him in a good situation. You know, all he has to do, I didn't have to worry about defending the run, just rush the passer. In, in a lot of these down and distance situations. But the fact is, he still generated 13 and a half sacks. He still was the guy that got it done. All right, next question. And Lap, you may have already answered this one with uh, your mention of Kevin Zeitler, but is there a deal that another team gave a free agent that you wish the Bengals had done? Butch, you go first on this one. I was kind of with Lap about Zeitler, but we may, after the draft, we may forget about that Zeitler deal depending on where the offensive line settles. But yeah, that was one. But I also, uh, when they, uh, when the, when the Raiders signed uh, John wide receiver, John Brown for 3.75 mil for a year, uh, you know, guy that can stretch the field, probably exactly what with Ross gone and AJ gone, probably exactly what they needed. Uh, would have liked to have seen that, but who knows? There's some other guys out there too, that I think they're looking at, but uh, you know, that would have been, uh, would have been nice. Yeah, I, I'm going to stay with the Zeitler uh, deal because I agree. Even if I sign Zeitler, I still would address guard and tackle in the draft. I hope they still do still yeah. address, address, address tackle and guard in the draft. But I think Zeitler would have come back here. I think he would have done a good job here. And to your point earlier, Dan, he went to a division rival. So, you know, the last place you'd like to see a guy that maybe you thought could help you go is to go help somebody that's, you know, a playoff team in your division. And he fits Baltimore's scheme perfectly because, in my mind, he's a better run blocker than a pass protector. He's not terrible in pass protection. He only gave up 
you know, two sacks uh, last year, you know, he, 630 snaps, gave up two sacks, 28 pressures. That's pretty damn good. But with that gap running game and with Lamar Jackson, you know, run the ball <laughs> as well as the running backs they have, that big old brute man with the gap and pulling, he's a good puller. He fits their scheme perfectly. So when he ended up going to Baltimore, I was like, God damn, not only didn't we get him, he went somewhere that is a perfect marriage for both parties, you know, but the Ravens paid him more. You know, I mean, money talks no matter uh, what the situation. Do we know for a fact that the Bengals weren't close on that dollar figure? I mean, were the Bengals willing to pay roughly as much, $7 million a year? And, and Kevin Zeitler said, you know what, this is the offense and the team I want to play with. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I heard, I heard that the Ravens definitely offered more money. I don't think it was crazy more, but it was more money. So you, you say more money, plus, like you said, and we mentioned earlier, the scheme, the teams in the playoffs. I mean, you know, why, why would you not go there if they offer, if they offer you, I don't, I, I don't care how much more, if it's, if it's a little, a little bit more money and what they have on the table, I could see where he'd make that decision. I was going to ask Lap this, and I was going to ask Lap a question. Uh, when it came, when when it comes to pass protection, where would you put Zeitler uh, compared to Spain, Quentin Spain, who the, who the Bengals have uh, you know reportedly resigned? Spain is a much bigger body guy, you know, much thicker, bigger. He's got good feet. I think that gives him a you know a little bit of an edge in protection. Um, you know, I, I I don't I don't see Zeitler having an advantage. I I see Zeitler having an advantage. You know, in, in movement, when, as a pulling guard and, and that sort of thing, and, and and angle blocking and you know things that that's why I say, man, uh, he he's basically going to line up. They they struggled to replace Marshall Yonda at right guard when Yonda retired. They think now they've got a guy. They're not saying I'm not saying and I don't think they're saying that it's going to be a future Hall of Famer like Marshall Yonda, but he's a damn good player. Kevin Zeit was a solid player. <sighs> <laughs> well, with uh, Ronnie Stanley back and Kevin Zeitler added and Orlando Brown moving back to the right side, that is a mighty offensive line again. So look out for the Ravens. So speaking of the Bengals offensive line, they've signed Riley Reef. They are bringing back Quentin Spain. Are they done spending on the offensive line or is there still maybe a guard out there that they would try to get on a cheapo one-year deal? Lap, what do you think? I'm not sure that uh, that there's anybody that they'd uh, they they probably uh, purchase at this point in time. I, I think they're almost they're pro they probably almost exhausted their cap. You know, to be able to go out and get a veteran player of any substance would probably uh, require more than they've got. You know, that's why people are oh man, this Giovanni Bernard potential trade rumor. Boy, that's a four million dollar cap saving. That'd add more money to the kitty to continue some of their free agency. Uh, signings in their roster purge. I mean, you look at it right now, uh, going into the draft, before the draft, and then June 1st, there's going to be a bunch of other players cut. There's still going to be a bunch of cuts that are going to happen. You watch these one-year deals, they're going to be happening left and right. Maybe, Dan, they can maybe go out and get a guy for one year, you know, a one-year prove-it deal. So many guys are saying, terrible year to be a free agent. I'll just do a one-year and bet on me deal. They've only got five starters the last game of the season on the depth chart for January 4th of 2021, there were five starters left, six new players. And defensively, there were four starters left, seven new players. And that's before the draft. And then maybe other potential free agency after the June 1st, uh, 
you know, date when, when t- other, uh, other cuts, a lot of blood is going to flow on that, on that date around the league as well. It's not, a, it's not an impossibility, but I think it's, uh, it's probably a little improbable. Trey Turner, Larry Warford, Kalechi Assembly, any, anybody uh, interest you, Butch? All those guys. But I don't know. Are they, you know, they've all, they've all had pretty good careers. I'm not sure where they are, where they are now. And I think Lap touched on this last week, too, is they looked at these people that were out there. And maybe for two and a half guys, maybe but for two and a half guys, one of them being Thune, they thought the people on the Mac were, you know, were significantly better than what they've got to go. You know, I'm just not sure that they feel like there's a huge. Now, I, I you know, when things, you know, I think things change when uh, I, I think they have their eyes on guys who are still under contract, but who they are expected to get whacked that not only at guard, but also at wide receiver. I don't think they've signed their last guard. And I think they'll probably sign a receiver. And I agree. I, I think I think that they're, the guys you mentioned, Dan, obviously they're all attractive. But, man, they're, want, they're wanting more money than the Bengals are able to offer right now. As free agency extends and goes on, prices are going to come down. You know, who's going to come down the furthest? Who's going to come down the most? Um, so, I, you know, I think they're still going to grind. I don't think they're packing up shop. But I don't. I don't think they find, they see a fit yet at this point in time, where they would uh, they would pull the trigger and they might you know say let's see what we get in the draft let's see what happens and you know that that now you go into the draft with a much different look and idea than before free agency with all these signings that you've had you know with your defensive depth and some starters and you know you've addressed one position offensively your right tackle position potentially but depending on what you get in the draft you might be able to kick him inside the guard, Riley Reef. who knows? So you go into each phase of it with a different mindset after you've done operating in the particular phase that you're in. Ryan Kerrigan visited on Thursday without a deal uh, getting done. Then Tom Palacero reported that the Bengals were fielding calls on Giovanni Bernard, possibility of trading him, as Lap mentioned, to free up more than $4 million against the cap. Were those two things related, Butch, the fact that they weren't able to get something done with Ryan Kerrigan and maybe the need to create some more space? No, I think they're, uh, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's isolated. I think they're uh, a good 30 million. I think they've spent a good 30 million on the cap for this year with those five, six, seven new players. So they may be, they're trying to, uh, you know, I think they're trying to get some breathing room just for those, you know? And um, I, plus two, uh, you know, you don't know. They may end up, their rookie pool might get a little bit bigger if they do actually, uh, say they do uh, tra- end up trading that fifth pick. You know, you end up with two, uh, you know, you, you end up with another high second round pick. Who knows? So, you know, they've done, they've done a lot of good, they've done a lot of good work and they've put up a, a number that I'm not sure they thought they were going to hit because I think they, you know, like Lap said, they did a hell of a job, I think, pivoting early on when they saw that the prices were not going to be reduced because of the reduced cap. They, they were still they were still at pre-pandemic numbers. And so, you know, that's uh that's uh, you know, there's I think they're uh, looking to find ways to do some different things and um, still trying to even probably fit the guys they already got. Lap, what yeah. about the Ryan Kerrigan possibility? 32 years old, four-time pro bowler, the Redskins' all-time leader in sacks. Obviously, it'd be nice to have somebody else that has a track record for getting after the quarterback, but how much gas is left in that tank? 
that's the question. Gas in the tank, tread on the tire, um, you know, taking a lot of hits, uh, a lot of wear and tear on the body. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming on these visits, guys take physicals. That's the thing with these draft prospects. You're going to be able to have your doctors put their hands on them, particularly guys that have incurred an injury. Some of these veteran free agents, you know, deals might be contingent on on uh, how they are physically. I mean, you, you, the, the longer a guy plays, the more potential injuries over the years start to mount up and become issues with guys and affect their level of play. I, I think, too, that it might be just a, a situation where he might still be looking for more money than they're willing to offer. But they wanted to bring him in, talk to him, check him out, see what he's about. Um, th- just because it hasn't happened yet, hasn't happened anywhere else yet either, he, he still may be out there. So I think, you know, they've exhibited that other P word, like we talked, you know, pivoting. We've had a couple of times now, patience. And it's like patience, Daniel San, you know, don't don't get Wang Chung at this point in time. There's going to be there's going to be other possibilities. And if it's not this guy, it might be a guy in the draft that might be revisited if they don't get an edge rush guy. And there are some there's some depth at edge rush. There's some depth in the offensive line and there's depth at receiver. And interestingly enough, there's still a lot of receivers out there that aren't signed. Who got the money? Trent Williams got a record amount at left tackle. Tooney got almost record amount at guard. Build from the inside out, like the legendary Paul Brown said. The teams only had one thing to worry about and could spend a ton of cap dollars on it. That's all San Francisco did. That's basically all Kansas City did. The Bengals weren't in that position. The Bengals had multiple. You know, they'd rather have a bunch of, uh, spread the money out over a bunch of people that might be able to help the roster rather than throwing it all on one and you're all or nothing on a guy with Trent Williams, who's in his thirties, you know, Tooney, who's been around a little bit. I mean, that's, that can be sometimes a dangerous uh, play in free agency. It can work out as well, but the Bengals decided, you know, to, to basically spread the money amongst multiple. And I'm, I'm all for doubling down, man, you throw all your money in one pot in free agency, man, you can, uh, you can crap out in the old blackjack table quickly. Yeah, I think in this draft, I think there's a shot they come out of it with two edge rushers. Yep. And, uh, you know, and a guard and a tackle. And a wide receiver. They got to go get a speed receiver somewhere. Got to go get one. Let's move on to a couple of former Bengals who have signed elsewhere. Andy Dalton, Chicago Bears, A.J. Green, Arizona Cardinals. How are they going to do in their new destinations? Lap, you can give a bad lead off on this one. I feel bad for Andy Dalton. No matter who the quarterback that the Bears signed, he was going to get abused because Russell Wilson is not a Chicago Bear. The whole city was infatuated with Russell Wilson's coming to Chicago. They're all all pumped up. And then Andy Dalton's the guy. Well, whoever was going to be the guy is the guy. Um, you know, I, I I think I think Andy Dalton still can do the things that he's done mentally over his career, and that is be a problem solver, identify defenses quickly, know where to go with the football, how to get it there. You know, I, Andy was as, as good as I've seen coming into the league. Joe Burrow's right in that category as well. Joe Burrow's probably, you know, maybe doctorate. Andy Andy Dalton was the grad school plus, you know, maybe master's plus 30, and just right below that doctorate level. I mean, so those kind of things coaches like, 
Bill Lazor is up there. Bill Lazor knows he can do that kind of thing. As a, as a former lineman, his linemen are going to love how he gets the ball out of his hand quickly. It's going to make their protection life so much easier. I mean, he, he's going to do a lot of things that, uh, that, that the Chicago Bears, I think, are going to like. The thing that he has to make sure that he doesn't do, though, don't turn it over because the Bears have a great defense. So don't put the offense, make the, make the opposite, always bear in mind the opposing offense, make them go the length of the field against that Bears defense. Don't give short fields, you know, that the, the Bears defense can't be as dominant as they might be able to be when the offense is in a in more of a predicament. So it's it's all about not turning the football over. And, uh, and Andy Dalton knows that, I think, as well as anybody. And as far as A.J. Green is concerned, it's going to be very interesting, um, you know, with Will Larry Fitzgerald come back? If he doesn't, A.J. Green probably is like the third guy. A.J. Green last year was the third guy here in Cincinnati. So as the third guy, you're facing, you know, the third corner. And when they're playing man, uh, if you're playing zone, it's a different ball game. But if you're matching up in man coverage, you know, I was expecting A.J. to light up those third corners. We talked about it during the year, Dan, when, you know, when A.J.'s season started to unfold and progress. At this point in time, the way Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins are playing, A.J. Green, he's getting their third cover guy, the third best guy. And he wasn't tearing that guy up, you know. He wasn't winning uh, at the level that, uh, that that I thought that I might see. Um, but, you know, a, a new place, new lease on life, and a quarterback that is, is extremely talented, can create plays and extend plays, can throw the football. It's going to be interest, interesting to see, you know, if A.J. Green um, – just you know, gets a burst of energy. I, I think I think that the 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 biggest surprise to me was AJ's body language through the whole thing. He almost played like he was disinterested. You know, he had that look of of, of disinterest, body language wise. And when you'd see his face on the sideline, you know, it just it just didn't seem like it was working, like it was a fit. And he talked about how you know it it, it was hard for him. They were asking him to do different things, and it wasn't coming easy to him. He wasn't learning things, you know, as well as or as quickly as he as he would have liked to. So he has to learn a whole new offense, you know, and, and that's not AJ's strong suit necessarily. So how long will it take AJ to to digest, comprehend, and uh, and be able to to go out there and uh, and perform? You know, if they if they decide he was he was he didn't like the fact that he was just like put in one spot. Well, in order to learn a new offense, they may start him out just playing in one spot until he can master that. And then they'll try to expand, you know, um, some of the other parts of, of what he might be able to contribute. But it's going to be interesting to see how the whole thing unfolds. I haven't seen a guy get, uh, I mean, you know, like I mean, in Chicago, I haven't seen a guy in Chicago get worse press maybe since uh, – Abraham Lincoln in the first debate against Stephen Douglas. I mean, that was a, uh, that, was a tough, uh, that was a tough welcome. Uh, you know, but like Lapp said, uh, you know, he's going to a good defense. Don't forget, Andy Dalton, when Mike Zimmer was a defensive coordinator, uh, Andy Dalton didn't lose a lot of games. You know, I mean, he won enough games to go to five playoffs. And, uh, you know, Andy got ripped so badly here. Yeah, there was some, you know, some call for it. But my God, I mean, people forget that, Going into the 2019 season, I think he had more fourth quarter comebacks in that stretch you get into the league since uh, everybody but one guy. And, uh, you know, he had more than Tom Brady. So, I mean, the guy can win games. You put him with a good defense. You know, I think it will, 
you know, it's going to be miserable for him probably, but uh, I, w- I would think, you know, I think he'll give it a, I think he'll give it a good go. Uh, Lat made a good point about AJ. Uh, I would think, uh, you know, when I had a chance to talk to him, he was excited about the, about his fit in that scheme in Arizona. He compared it to uh, what basically uh, Ken Zampezi and Bill Lazor ran here uh, uh, but when, when they were the coordinators. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, people forget this, uh, but that, that 2018 season before AJ got hurt, I mean, he was on fire. I mean, he was, uh, he was you know, going to be uh, uh, getting near his career high. You know, the three touchdowns against Baltimore, when they put him in the slot, I think. I think, I think he lined up in the slot on all three of those touchdowns. He was – that's something that he mentioned was, you know, they lined them up in one spot here. They lined them up at the X in this last offense. And I think he feels like Arizona is going to move him around a little bit and that he'll probably run more. You know, he won't run as many. And I think Lap was right. And AJ did mention this in his last uh, news conference was, you know, it was a new, you know, I'm not sure he was into the routes that they were wanting him to run. So at least I think mentally he's going into it feeling like it's a better, it's a better fit for him. You know, and like Lap mentioned, um, you know, you know, does he have any juice left? You know, I mean, he he did not go, you know, when they were looking at T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, you figured he'd go off. It didn't happen. Did it, ha- did it happen because of the system? Did it happen because he's got nothing left? Did it happen? You know, why did it happen? We're not going to know. You know, we'll probably get a better answer. We'll probably get a better answer when we see what happens out, uh, when we see what happens out there. I wish the best for him. I, I wish the best for both guys. It's, you know, without them, there is no Green Dalton era. Yeah, the Andy Andy AJ era, like you talked about, Butch, five straight playoffs, fifty and twenty-five over seventy-five games. They won twice as many as they lost. I mean that that and and they were the two, you know, big primary reasons for it. I mean that's what people forget about Andy Dalton. The the start of his career was about as good as anybody's. I mean, you win twice as many games as you lose. In your first five years in the league and have and start right away as a rookie quarterback, that's that's uh that's a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah, that was right up until the point where he broke his thumb. Fifty and twenty-five yeah. until that game in twenty fifteen when he broke his thumb. Right. I was gonna say when with uh, you know when you know with Zach Taylor coming in, tough for Zach Taylor too to fit him into his to 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 build a scheme because AJ gets hurt like in his first practice. Zach Taylor is the coach. And so is he is he is he scheming for AJ Green of 2015 or AJ Green of 2020? It's a hard it was a hard call for everybody. And then you throw in the pandemic where they couldn't work together with a rookie quarterback. It was a perfect storm. It just goes to show you, no matter how great the player is, the mind has to be right. The mind can't be cluttered. You know, I mean, it, and it, yep, your mindset has to be uh, has to be really good. And I'll tell you, you know, AJ. That, that, that guy is solid gold. I mean, as a, as a, as a player, as a human being, you know, one of the, one of the greats of all time and uh, obviously wish him nothing but success in the MD Dalton, like you mentioned, Butch. I'd like to know how last year would have gone if the referee did what he should have done and keep the flag in his pocket on that play against the Chargers in the opening game. Maybe that helps him. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm a homer. Uh, I don't know. Keep the flag in the pocket for the <laughs> second you know, AJ got no separation last year. I don't know why that was the case. I don't know if it's because of age. I don't know if it was because he missed the previous year and a half due to injury. I don't know if it was the comfort level in the offense. But your eye told you that, that he didn't get any separation. 
The GPS data told you that, that he didn't get any separation. So to me, it seems like as he gets older, he'll be 33 this season. That's probably not going to get better. It's going to get worse. I hope he proves me wrong because I love AJ and I would love to see him have a great finish to his career in Arizona. But I do wonder what the Cardinals are doing. I mean, do they think that there is an over 30 league for football uh, that I'm not familiar with because, you know, J.J. Watt's one of the great defensive players of all time, but he's 31 and uh, has a building injury history. You know, Malcolm Butler, they just signed him. He's in his 30s. A.J.'s going to be 33. They went out and added a 37-year-old kicker in uh, Matt Crater. So I think the overwhelming history in the NFL is that if you go out and sign 30-year-old and older free agents, it doesn't work. And they're signing one after the other. I guess what they're saying is they're all in for this year, right? Because next year, probably not going to be any of these guys are going to be on. If you end up signing guys and rewarding them for careers they have with other teams, that's dangerous policy there. You know, if you're signing J.J. Watt based on what he was with the Texans and what he was with the Texans five years ago, or you're signing A.J. Green, what he was with the Bengals, what he was with the Bengals three years ago, that can be a, a dangerous thing. The I can tell you for – from experience, if you have any doubt in your mind or aren't confident as an athlete, if you line up to pass protect, like when I was pass protecting or trying to against Joe Green, and I thought, oh, this isn't going to go well, you're done. You're beaten. I mean, if AJ lined up and it's like, what am I supposed to do on this? I'm not sure about this. I don't really believe in this. You're not going to, you're not going to win. You know, so your mind has to be totally free and clear. You can't have any doubt about the scheme, the coaching, anything else, or you're in trouble. And, and uh, you know, maybe that's when, when guys say, uh, I, I needed a new destination, I needed a new location, a change of scenery. That's kind of what they're talking about. I, for whatever reason, maybe it was both ways. Both parties lost confidence and trust in each other or whatever. Who knows what the situation is? And every one of them is a little bit different. But uh, change of scenery um, you know, in, in, in some instances might be just exactly that. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start fresh, start with a, a clean slate, an open mind. My, my head is clear and I believe and I'm going to go out there and kick butt like I used to. I mean, who knows? We'll see. DeAndre Hopkins had 115 catches last year. So AJ is not going to be the number one target or even the number two target if, if DeAndre Hopkins is healthy in Arizona. Last year, Larry Fitzgerald had 54 catches for 409 yards. It was like seven yards per catch. A.J. Green can obviously do that. I mean, he was a little better than that for Cincinnati last year. So if that's what the Cardinals are looking for, a guy that can get 50 catches, average, you know, maybe close to 10 yards a catch as a third option, then he can deliver that. But if, if they are expecting him to be the A.J. Green from his first seven years in Cincinnati. I don't think there's much of a chance of that being the case. That's a good point, Dan. Maybe they said, you know what, we're getting a younger Larry Fitzgerald. A.J. Green is almost a carbon copy of Larry Fitzgerald, personality-wise, performance-wise. You know, not Larry Fitzgerald can't run flat-out speed like A.J., but, I mean, obviously great route runner, great understanding of football and all that. Production level, though, I mean – they're, they're both Pro Bowl players, multiple-time Pro Bowl players, future Hall of Fame-type player with great uh, people skills on, on and off the football field. 
Maybe they thought, let's get a younger version of Larry Fitzgerald, and that's what we're expecting. They paid, what, $6 million guaranteed $8 million, uh, contract? That's pretty good eats for if that's what their expectation was, you know. As for Andy Dalton in Chicago, he just better have tough skin. He and JJ, because, you know, as you guys alluded to, it's already started and he hasn't even played a game yet in a Chicago uniform. Uh, the Bears posted a picture on Twitter yesterday or the day before of him in his new number 14 Bears jersey. Somebody yep. photoshopped it and made it two and 14 on the front of the jersey, which was oh. not very nice. And I don't know if you guys saw the Wheel of Fortune gag that was out there last week after he signed his deal with Chicago, but somebody posted a picture of the Wheel of Fortune board, and you see, like, on the top line, there are four blank letters, and then on the bottom line, it's blank, blank, L, blank, O, N, and a Bears fan says, I would like to answer the puzzle. Russ Wilson, and he's all happy. And then the letters turn over and it says Andy Dalton, and he's distraught. So, so they are having a lot of fun at Andy's expense. In the games he started for Dallas last year, the Cowboys were four and five. I think that the Bears are going to be roughly a 500 team. Their defense is good enough. That's what they were last year with, you know, Nick Foles and Mitch Trubisky at quarterback. Andy will be okay. He'll be somewhere around, you know, 20th in passer rating or something like that. And uh, I, I see them being a middle of the pack, eight and nine, nine and eight type team. That's right. Abraham Lincoln had it tough on social media, too. When he, <laughs> you know. he had it even worse in Ford's theater, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Before we move on to some Ask Lap, or in this case, Ask Lap and Butch questions, one more thing from me. And that is another all-time Bengals great who has been let go. He hasn't signed on with another, with another team yet. That is Geno Atkins. What is your favorite Geno Atkins memory? Butch, you want to go first with this one? It, it, it involves the man sitting right here. I didn't have much interaction with Geno, so I don't uh, – but Lapa, when Lap was calling the uh, – December 23rd, 2012 game in Pittsburgh when that great Bengals defense stoned Pittsburgh to get into the playoffs and Lap was punctuating each Geno play with Geno Atkins. Geno Atkins. I mean, he was, I mean, uh, Geno was dominant that day. You know, that was kind of his coming out, Pat. He was already a great player. He was already a pro. But I think that game, he established himself and uh, it was, hey, I mean, it made one of the great analysts in the game break into song. I remember in the locker room after that, in the locker room, he was looking for me. He goes, I'm looking for Gino. It was great. <laughs> it was, uh, that was my, that's my one Gino memory, my one Gino game. I'm glad you asked me first because that might be lapsed uh, memory too. My memory is Gino Atkins, when you go against a rookie or a young or just somebody that had never practiced against Geno Atkins before in pass rush drill. And I, I would position myself to look at the face of the opposing offensive lineman when Geno stormed off the ball and started bull rushing him. And the guy's jacked up. He's on skates. He can't get his feet back on the ground. And his eyes are as big as hard-boiled eggs. And Geno Atkins is throwing him around like a rag doll. And I'm like, welcome to the world of Geno Atkins. That was the most, I mean... These are grown men, big body guys, and Gino in his prime was just tooling them. 
I mean, throwing them around like they were, it was a man amongst boys. And I would just love to watch training camp pass rush drill and the first exposure those guys had to the real Geno Adkins coming off the football, man. He was unbelievable. He'd, he'd break them all in. He didn't doctrinate him for the way of Geno. My on-field favorite memory of Geno is from the same game that Butch mentioned, that 2012 game in Pittsburgh where the Bengals beat the Steelers two days before Christmas. They earned the playoff berth. They knocked the Steelers out of the playoffs on their home field. And the reason, in my case, is that that is the most physical football game I have ever seen in my life on both sides. I mean, that was an absolute 15-round heavyweight fight the Bengals sacked Roethlisberger four times. The Steelers sacked Andy six times. Uh, the Bengals hit Ben seven times. The Steelers hit Andy eight times. And of all of those warriors that were out there that day throwing haymakers, Gino was the guy that stood out the most. His final stats, he had two sacks in that game, but he was actually in on three. So he had one solo and two shared sacks. Uh, he had a forced fumble. He had another tackle for loss. I mean, the Steelers could not handle him in that game. Bengals wind up winning on the last second field goal by Josh Brown to go to the playoffs. And for an on-field memory, that one is number one for me. I remember guys like Richie Incognito, you know, when he was a pro bowler and other guys, even, even at the pro bowl, those guys would just say, Geno Atkins and start shaking their head. I mean, Geno Atkins was definitely – a freak of nature. I mean, just on that short, that short, stout frame, he was so explosive, so strong, low center of gravity, nightmare, nightmare. You got to keep your pad level low. And even when you keep it low, it's awkward for you because his pad level's already low. You have to come off on your kneecaps instead of your feet to stay as low as Gino. In his day, boy, he was, he was unblockable one-on-one. You they, they would never, I mean, I've watched games and he'd play an entire game and never be single blocked in pass protection, not one time. You think Gino made it kind of in to be, you know, with the leverage game, be a short guy? You know, I think there were, I remember playing against guys like Dave Purify, Dave Roller. These defensive tackles were, you know, like the short, short player, like you're talking about. They weren't Gino, you know. Dave Roller had a spin move, was his big move. These guys had signature, you know, moves, but Gino's was, I'm just going to line up and kick your butt with my explosiveness, my strength. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think anytime a guy um, of that different stature, like Sam Mills playing linebacker, at, you know, 5'10", 5'9", that was like unheard of before. You can't play middle linebacker in the NFL at 5'9". I played against him in the USFL before we went to the NFL. That dude could play. I don't care how tall, that dude was a player. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, Doug Flutie at quarterback. There's a, there are all kinds of guys that break trends. I think Gino would fall in that category, Butch. I mean, that not only made it, but made it big. I mean, you know, perennial pro bowler, we're talking. Because I think Aaron Donald was, uh, I think Aaron Donald a few years after that was, you know, a first round pick. And you never would have seen a first round defensive tackle with at, at uh, his dimension. At yeah, I mean, dimension, for, you know? for, for Gino to be, um, it, it, all the Pro Bowls that he went to as a fourth-round pick, one of the best value picks in franchise history, let's face it. Him and Trumpy. Twelfth round yep. in Trumpy's case. I do actually have a Geno Atkins off-the-field memory 
Back in 2011, when uh, when the Bengals were nice enough to give you Friday afternoons off lap, and, and I used to do the pep rally show with Artrell Hawkins, Geno Atkins came on and did one hour on the radio with us, which, you know, he would never do now. He was perfectly fine. I, I thought he was good. The fans loved it. Uh, I wish that would have continued, but after he tore his ACL in 2013 and then you know, wasn't quite as good the next year before eventually returning to his great form. Took some criticism. Paul Gunther wasn't uh, very kind in describing his play. It seemed like that was the point where he shut it down to the media. And unfortunately, the notion of doing an hour of radio uh, on location with, with Gino Atkins could never happen again. My career conversations with Gino uh, would not add up to an hour. <laughs> Just bring them all together. It's a shame because he was fine when he did that news conference after he signed his most recent contract extension. He was fine. I, I don't know if he just didn't like doing it or didn't think he was good, good at doing interviews. Uh, but I wish that would have continued because that, that one hour uh, show with him was great. Yeah, we had him on multiple times, Dan, uh, you know, early in his career on, on Bengals line on Monday night for an hour. And he was great. You're right. I think he just, Somebody, something happened. He felt like he get betrayed by somebody and he shut it down. He said, that's it. I'm done with all of you. Uh, whatever that one incident was, erected for everybody. I, I'm, I don't know what it was or how big it was, but in Gino's mind, it was big enough to shut it all down. All right. Let's get to some of the Ask Lap questions that came rolling in on Twitter this week. We will expand it to Ask Lap and Butch. But since they were meant for LAP, we'll let LAP go first, and then uh, we'll comment after. Our first question comes from Kelsey. Why do the Bengals feel comfortable banking on Frank Pollock turning around their offensive line play when that strategy didn't work with Jim Turner? Well, you know, the first thing that you have to have, talent makes a coach great. <laughs> talent. If, if a coach has got players, it's a hell of a lot easier to be a great coach. There's no question about it. No, all coaches will tell you the same thing, but all, all great players, you know, Anthony Munoz will tell you the reason he was as good as he was is Jim McNally, you know, and Max Montori feels the same way. It's, it's almost like, you know, it's, you have to have both. If, if, a, if, a, if a great player doesn't have a coach that can take him to another level, everybody wants to be coached. Everybody wants to be helped. Everybody wants to improve. And the great ones that are realistic realize they don't have all the answers. So you're looking for somebody that's going to take your game, whatever it is, to the next level. If you're a guy that's just making an NFL team, you want a guy that's going to help you be a contributor on the roster. If you're just a contributor on the roster, you want a guy that's going to make you a starter. If you're a starter, you want a guy that's going to make you a pro bowler. I mean, that's just the way it is. And um, I think that Frank Pollock has, um, I think he has a reputation of employing sound techniques and he's a great teacher of his techniques. And that's what Jim McNally was. Jim McNally had techniques he believed in. He was always refining them. Jim McNally was, was never like, no, no, these, that, these, this is the answer. This is the only answer. And that's what I think what players like about Frank Pollock, having played the game for nine years, he understands that every body type's not the same. And a technique that works for one guy might not be the best take technique in the world for another guy. One guy might be long upper torso, short legs. 
Another guy, long legs, short upper to torso. One guy's got long arms, one guy's got short arms. You have to be able to mollify, you know, and adapt your and adjust your techniques. And Frank is really good at that. And I think players respond to that. And he's he's there not to be a dictator. He's there to help. You know, I'm not saying that it's a democracy. I'm, you know, he he, he will make all the decisions, but he listens and um, and 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 adapts. And I think I think a great testament to Frank Pollock is the relationship he has with Joe Mixon. That's not even one of his players. But Joe Mixon realizes the value that Frank Pollock brought to that offensive line room and how they responded to him and how it made him, his life, easier and better as a running back and as a football player. And so I think that the ripple effect that a good offensive line coach can have in terms of confidence and then performance, uh, betterment, not just by linemen, by, by everybody. Quarterback feels more confident. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to have time to throw the football with this guy teaching my lineman. But again, Dan, you do have to have something to work with. You know, I mean, he can't uh, he, he can't perform miracles. Got to got to improve the offensive line and, and 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 let him be part of the evaluation process. This guy would be perfect because the techniques that I'm trying to employ, he he's watching him on tape. He's going to be able to execute everything that I want executed from a technique standpoint. All that stuff, I think, becomes important. I've never heard another coach or player say a negative word about Frank Pollock, whether it's with the Bengals or with another team. And there aren't that many coaches that I can say that about. There's always a critic out there somewhere of just about everybody. It seems like anybody you talk to has respect for Frank Pollock as a coach and as a person. It's a pretty good sign. And, you know, Dan, that's a great point because, like, Dick LeBeau, for example, Every player that was in contact with Dick LeBeau respects him and then likes him to boot. If you have that double combination, you have total respect. So you're not going to take advantage of them, but you really like them. That's powerful. And I think you hit right on that right nail right in the head with Frank Pollock. I think the players respect them and the added cherry on top of the Sunday is they like them. Next question. I'm going to combine two questions. Hank asks, why is the Bengals organization so cavalier about improving the offensive line? Ryan asks, how can they not address guard? So combine those two, two questions into one thought lap. Why so cavalier about improving the offensive line? Why have they not addressed guard? They haven't been cavalier. They just haven't hit. You don't have to go back too many drafts to find a way here in fish where they went first and second round and tried to double down with their top two picks and went over. You know, that's just a, that's a tough, that's a tough dynamic. That's a tough thing to recover from. Not just that year, that has an impact on a few years. When you, when you go 0 for 2 on your first two picks of a draft, uh, that it doesn't work out at that position and other positions you could have addressed with those picks go unaddressed. You have a massive ripple effect. So, you know, Billy Price, um, you know, with a, with a high, it's not like they haven't expended high picks but they haven't gotten the value in return for those high picks. And it's not just the Bengals. I mean, coaches, uh, or should say fans in every single city will cry and moan about, you know, failed picks with their offensive line. It's not an exact science. And they, they have tried to address it. And they will continue to address it. And it's going to be addressed big time in this draft. And what you have to do is you just have to try to recruit 
by whatever means, free agency, the draft, college free, whatever it is, um, as many talented players as you can and put the best five out on the field, no matter what position you end up putting them at. If they do draft uh, Penne Sewell and, and they say, all right, we're going to put him at right tackle and Riley Reese, you're going inside. Or we're going to put him at left tackle and Jonah, you're going inside. So be it. If it's better to put Penne Sewell inside, so be it. The guy who's going to decide that is, is, is Frank Pollock. But put the five best guys. Hopefully you have 10 guys that you can, you know, you're, you're, they're all competing their tail off. You find the five best, put them in, in positions that you feel will uh, be most successful for their contribution to the team. And then, you know, however many to keep eight or nine offensive linemen and have to deactivate one or two of them, whatever the case may be, you have to have position versatility. And that's one thing that I think Frank understands and, and uh, puts in his evaluation process have to be able to play more than one position. I really do believe that he'll help get it right. He'll get players in there to compete and put an offensive line out there that he's going to feel proud of. Are the Bengals cavalier about improving the offensive line? If they draft Sewell and or Slater in the, in the first round, there'll be four first round picks in the last seven drafts. That's the opposite of cavalier. And I agree with you, Butch. I think Slater, I'm not, I'm not one that has Sewell and then a big drop to Slater. I have Sewell and Slater, you know, up there pretty good. In fact, if I were in a situation where I could trade back with that fifth pick and still be able to get Slater and get an extra second round pick, bingo, bango, bongo. I yep. am printing to get that done. Because then you get then you get Slater and then you get maybe two edge rushers in the second round. If you or, get tackle, if you get or, one more tackle and an edge rusher, you think you Slater. Slater. Slater can definitely play guard and tackle. And then you you get maybe a yeah an edge rush. In my mind, there's offensive linemen that they could get that could help, particularly a guard, up until the fourth round. Fourth round, if you get an extra second round pick, and you have five picks in the and they're in the fifth pick of the fourth round. So you have five picks to the fifth pick of the fourth round. You're still talking about, you know, one of the top 150 odd players in the country you're still going to be able to get good viable candidates and double down on one or two position groups. Our next question comes from Bearcat Joe. If Paul Brown were still alive, wouldn't he draft Panay Sewell? Would he laugh? I think he'd be uh, in consideration, under consideration. I mean, like I've said a couple of times, I, I know Paul Brown's mentality was, you know, built from the inside out. And he knew that uh, he had a lot of great Pro Bowl skilled players, but without, you know, the Mike McCormick's of the world in his offensive line, he, Lou Groza, you know, he was, he was all about you know, Lou Latoe, obviously a more famous kicker than, but he was the Pro Bowl tackle as well. Mike McCormick and Lou Groza, he, he always had superior offensive lines. He believed in it. So I do think that uh, he would, he would definitely consider Sewell, Slater. I mean, there's, I, I'm not sure that he would necessarily uh, be married to one, but I, I know he would put high importance on, uh, on that position. You know, the thing, like I said, with Sewell, I like him, obviously it's hard not to like him, his physical attributes, but it's a very small sample size. And, you know, when you watch him, 
like in his opener against Oregon, watching that game, a third of his pass sets, he didn't win. And he didn't have many of them. I'm talking about drop back protection. And the way their offense was struggled, drop back protection is hard to identify. And and it wasn't it wasn't great competition, you know, that uh that that SEC who's Auburn's, you know, middle of the SEC, he was struggling. He was struggling to win. So he, he didn't play against 10 or 12 dominant edge rushers from the SEC that you have all this tape, you know, in order to say, oh, yeah, he's the guy. Eh, maybe not be. The, I mean, I'm not saying he, he wouldn't project. I, I'm saying he does project, but I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. It never is with anybody. But, you know, he's obviously one to consider. What do you think, Butch? If Paul were still alive, would he take Sewell? I, it's interesting what Lapp said, you know, about, uh, you know, Paul noticed stuff like that, obviously, clearly. He was one of the best in the game, you know? And he wasn't afraid of going out of the box. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe uh, I remember him, the only, the only draft I covered him in was the 1991 draft. And he was heartbroken when it, Seattle took Dan McGuire, who was Mark McGuire's brother. He loved the tall quarterback. quarterback. Yeah, he loved the tall quarterback, and that would have been a little bit out of the box at that point in the first round. So, you know, if people were alive, I remember him saying at a practice, he goes, "I'm a fire and fall back guy." PB might be pulling the trigger on Chase. Where are you guys right now? I, I, I think our opinions all, you know, we drift back and forth for which guy we would like. If they stay at number five, who are you picking right now? I, you know, Lap just scared me <laughs> with that. Uh, so I don't, I don't, um, you know, I, you got to go, you got to protect the guy, right? I mean, I guess you go, if you think Sewell's better, I, I, I think you got to take the tackle. I think you got to take the offensive lineman. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would go for an offensive lineman if there's one available there, like we talked about before. I mean, you know, these mock drafts are exactly that, but you got mock drafts that have quarterbacks going with the first four picks. So, you know, if that's the case, you're going to be able to pick the best non-quarterback football player in the entire draft. That's a good place to be. If, if they don't take all those quarterbacks, the first four picks ahead of the Bengals at number five, now you're going to have teams wanting to move up if they are indeed interested in a quarterback and their guy's still there and you'll be able to trade back. That's my first option or my first hope is that those quarterbacks don't all go in the first four picks. I don't know, maybe somebody would panic and say, well, we'll take the fifth one. Whoever the fifth one is, there are five of them that they're projecting go in the first round. <laughs> they're not all going to go the first five picks, but you never know. I mean, I think they're going to be in a good position. The draft starts at pick two, obviously. I think they're going to be in a good position at five to potentially trade back. And just like in these free agency contracts, you know, the Bengals, they were out pursuing players, but it takes two to make a deal. Yeah. If the player doesn't want to sign, it doesn't matter. If you're out there trying to sign them, if they don't want to sign, you know, it's a it's a two way street. Um, Galladay, in my mind, Joe Burrow was an attraction. These receivers that want to sign one year contracts and then go to free agency next year. Why wouldn't you want to be with Joe Burrow if you're a receiver that, uh, you know, wants to have a big year and a one year deal? Um, so, you know, I don't know this. It's, it's going to be an interesting time, this draft. But I, if they could trade back, I think they might. Might find a partner to trade back, and man, that would be Christmas morning for me. Get two for get two players. If Sewell is there, 
I take Sewell. I'm not going to overthink it. I think he's got the chance to be a multi-time pro bowler who's going to spend, you know, a decade at either left or right tackle. If he's gone and Jamar Chase is there, I'm fine with taking Jamar Chase and reuniting him with Joe Burrow. If they're both gone, I'm still not there. I'm taking Kyle Pitts at number five is as great as he seems like he, he could be. And, you know, ran the unbelievable 40 time. At that point, I would really look to, to trade down. That That's where I am. Sewell's still my hope. Chase is right there with him. After that, I'd be fine with trading down. I'm with you. I would not have a – if they take Panay Sewell at five, and, you know, you wonder if – I mean, you're hearing that he might not be there. But if he is there at five, he deserves it. I mean, he, I, I don't think that's overranking him in this year's draft. Chase, you watch that guy run routes? He throws people around. I mean, he is a physical route runner. And, of course, you know, Joe Burrow threw in 20 touchdown passes in the great year. So how can you argue that? Lap, I think we'll have to make a big decision. They'll have to say, is, is Sewell, are Sewell and Chase that much better? than Because I think they'll have multiple suitors at five. I, I don't think we'll be. I think they'll have multiple suitors. I think they'll be able to take the best deal. Would that deal, you know, be better than taking Sewell or Chase? You know, I think they have to, you know, because like you said about those those two high second-round picks, those are going to be what the, one of the top fifty players in the country. You know. What did they what, what did they do in free agency? Instead of taking one guy, they right. tried to get as many guys as they possibly could. I think they're in that kind of that that, that mode. You know, I, it might spill over into the draft. Instead of just one guy, if you have a chance to get a guy that you have rated very closely to that one guy, and get another pick. You know, they, they may go that route. You know, they, they got two corners for the price of Will Jackson. Maybe they can get a couple of uh, rookie linemen for the price of uh, one. But who knows? Who knows? All right. A few more Ask Lap questions. This one comes from Dustin. Did the Bengals attack defense and free agency, or is that just how things worked out? I think it's just how it worked out. You know, I think I think that they were, they were in their they, – they wanted to sign Tooney just like everybody. But it got ridiculous. They, they weren't going to sign him. They wanted to sign Galladay. You know, there, there were offensive players that they were in the hunt for, I'm sure. But, you know, when the numbers got to the point where, all right, let's pivot and see what we can get uh, bigger bang for the buck as such and how many players that we might be able to get. And I think it just so happened to be defensive players. I don't think when they went through their free agency evaluation was like, geez, there were no offensive players and there were a ton of defensive players. And the draft is all offense and no defense. I don't think it was that clear cut and simple. I think they just ended up pivoting to the, you know, to the next, uh, the next plan. And it, it fell in the defensive players laps. I, I think it, I'm not saying coincidental, but I'm saying that it just, that's just the way the chips fell. Is that about right, Butch? I, I think laps dead on. I think it was a deeper, it was a deeper free agency. Uh, the free agency board was deeper on defense. I think for the spots that they needed compared to offense. You know, the guard, the guard thing, I think, just kind of fell off the cliff after Tooney when you're talking about the money. And I just felt like they thought they were better fits uh, at corner, like you said, the two-for-one. And and they knew they had to get uh, – the, the minute the Thune thing went ridiculous, they knew they had to get an edge rusher. Because I think they went in thinking, you know, we might be able to get two edge rushers at 10 mil apiece. But that, you know, because of the way, because of the reduced cap. 
But then the way the thing, you know, obviously in the first hours of free agency, clearly that that was not going to happen. Again, like Lap said, the pivot, Thune was ridiculous. Get the Make sure you get the edge guy. I think the other thing that happened too is that offensive linemen that they were interested in either re-signed with their original team or got tagged like Taylor Moten from Carolina. You know, that was a name that came up over and over and over and over again. And then the Panthers tagged him so much for that. Daryl Williams name came, came up a lot. Buffalo re-signed him. So some of those free agents that they probably spent a lot of time studying and, and determining what they were going to offer and what their value would be never came to fruition because they ultimately were not free agents. And at that point you pivot to the guys that are. And that's why the numbers went up so extremely high for the ones that did make free agency. The pool was smaller. It's a supply and demand thing. You had a smaller pool, fewer teams. Uh, the fewer teams wanted to make make a, uh, you know, that, that had the one need. I mean, Kansas City said, we need, we need interior line help. That's what they went after. And they spent a ton to get it. Redskins, you know, targeted their guy, Trent Williams. They, that, that was their only move. They went and got it done. So that's why free agency in the early stages, um, if you have a great lineman, normally they don't make free agency. But when, when they did, I think, I think some teams were probably surprised that, that the number got so high. I bet San Francisco thought, geez, we didn't expect to pay that much for Trent Williams. I bet Kansas City, I bet we didn't expect that much to pay for, for a guard. But, you know, th- those guys were commodities that, that, that a team that needed that specific thing was going to pay whatever it took to get, and others had to move on and pivot. All right, our next question is actually a, a celebrity question. This comes from former Saturday Night Live cast member and Lakota East High School grad Luke Null, a big Bengals fan. Luke's question is, who do you anticipate seeing the biggest improvement out of from the returning players on defense? What do you think of that, Lap? My first reaction is I can't wait to see the guy they spent so much money on and didn't get a snap out of, uh, Trey Waynes. You know, I, I think he's going to be a big contributor uh, to their success. Um, and, and we're talking about free agents that uh, – or, or anybody that played defense last year, you're saying, to improve to this year? Is that what the yes. question was? I think so. Returning players on defense. So I guess it could be a guy like Trey Waynes who's returning but didn't play. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I – I can't wait to see, you know, his, his contribution. DJ Reader, I think, was, was playing well and uh, only got a couple of snaps in before, you know, having that, uh, that severe knee injury. So, you know, I think, I think him and, and that that's, that's brings, you know, to the, to the other point. It's, uh, it, it's, it's almost like you've got two free agency classes instead of just one with, with guys like Trey Waynes and DJ Reader being added to the guys that they've signed on defense, uh, you know, in, in this offseason with Mike Hilton's and uh, Ch- Ch- Cheeto and, uh, you know, you add Trey Waynes to that. And it's uh, it, it really is it really is pretty, pretty incredible. Ricardo Allen, um, Eli Apple. I mean, they, they've remade their secondary uh, DJ Reader, uh, Trey Hendrickson, Larry Ogunjobi. I mean, it's 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 remarkable what they've done in terms of free agency the last two years, the defense is totally redone, reshuffled. And I think it's going to be interesting to see who steps up, who steps up and performs at the level that they they were evaluated at and the team's projecting them to play at. 
I'm a Logan Wilson guy. I think Logan Wilson is going to be – I expect him to come up big. Uh, they obviously have a lot of confidence in him because they, they seem to suggest that he will be starting next Pratt. And uh, I think that uh, they were very high on him when they draft. You know, they were a uh, sigh of relief when they did get him at the top of the third round. And I think they feel like his football instincts, his quickness – uh, and his athleticism is something they really haven't had at that spot. They've tried there, too, down through the years, but I expect him to take a big uh, – he'll be starting, getting a lot of snaps. That year one to two jump, I think, will be huge for Logan Wilson. And uh, on that note, we will wrap up this longer-than-anticipated but hopefully very entertaining version of the Bengals Booth Podcast. Gentlemen, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Horty. Always great to be with you guys. Appreciate it, Dan. Good to see you, Butch. Same here, Lap. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.